0: of our series, Steady As She Goes, talking about steady faith. How do we have steady faith? If you've missed any of those sermons, we've had some really great contributions to that, looking at the characters in God's Word who illustrate for us what steady faith looks like. You know, I'm curious, have any of you ever house-shared before? Anybody? house share? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Quite a few of us. Most of us. We start out that way because that's the only way we can afford to live in a house that's not our parents, right? We house share a little bit. Stan and I actually house shared before we came to Australia with my oldest sister, who's single. She's been single for her whole entire life. And instead of children, she has about six fur babies from time to time. And we like pets, but we like them outside. My sister is different. So when we house shared with my sister, that was one of the challenging things. But... um, there was a time where our daughters actually, when they were young marrieds, house shared. And I didn't ask permission to share this, but you know, I'll ask forgiveness later. <laughs> but you know, as they house shared, sometimes you know, things get a little bit tense, and, and one sister was tired of the other sister leaving stuff piled all over the dining room table. So you know what she did? She sold the table. <laughs> I'm like, you did what? That was pretty bold. But sometimes we get these, these, when two families share the same roof, it gets a little bit tense. And and over the long haul, often it doesn't work. That's where we pick up our story today with a quick look at Israel. Aren't you excited? You think, oh, I've waited all week to hear about Israel. Probably not. Probably not. But Israel can teach us a lot of things about what it means to have steady faith. But in this case, we're going to look at them for the antithesis of that or the opposite of that. What got them into trouble so often was that their faith wasn't steady. So sometimes I think it's helpful to look at the opposite of what we're trying to achieve, just like, okay, well, don't do that, and we'll probably be okay. So we're going to look at that a little bit today, but with a special focus on a very special man in Israel. So Israel had lessons to teach us about faltering faith. So the state of Israel at this stage, and we're kind of ending the book of Joshua, Stan did that last week for us in um, picking up in Judges. Godly leadership had gone and it was forgotten. So Joshua and all his contemporaries had passed on and it didn't take long for Israel to forget the godly leadership that God had provided for them in realizing some of God's promises. And they had to keep, forward, keep moving forward. That was Stan's challenge to us last week to keep moving forward forward. And they were told that they needed to drive out the people that were in the land. And they had been warned by Joshua. The warning had been something along the lines of, if you don't do this, you are to go in, don't deviate from the plan, don't associate with the people, drive them out, and keep following God's instructions. That was their charge that Joshua left them before he passed on. You know, you could think, why did God make them fight for it? Why didn't he just give it to them? I mean, he was giving them the promised land and and he could have just given it to them clear without any battles to be fought. But God wanted them to work for it because remember last week, no risk, no reward. It needed to cost them something and they needed to keep moving forward and realizing God's promises. It's worth noting God's generosity here. As I was reading and preparing this week, I thought about that and thought, you know, it would have been easier if there hadn't been anybody in the land But by leaving the land occupied, they were moving in to a fully furnished land. They had houses and vineyards and olive groves and livestock that they would just inherit. He had them set up. They moved in and ready to live circumstances. And I, I think that that's really good that God didn't make them have to start from scratch. Why did God do it the way he does it? We always ask that, don't we? Why does God do things the way he does? You know, it did a couple of things. It developed strength of character in his people. They had to learn to trust him and to obey him. So this strength of character was going to be with them for the rest of their journey, and that was really important. But it also gave them a reputation as being a people that God fought for. God, This was God's people. He fought their battles. They were the underdog, if you will, and they always came out on top. And so God used these battles to establish his people as his people. But the sad part of the story, remember I said the opposite, is Israel failed to obey God. They they didn't follow his instructions fully, and it cost them greatly, because what happened is they remained under the influence of these remnant people groups. They were pagan people groups. And this angered God. God said, why couldn't you just listen to me? Who, up until now, he had been fighting the battles for them. And he's like, okay, you guys wanna do it your way? I'll let you do it your way. And so, even in this, God has a purpose, though. It wasn't that God was abandoning them, God uses these pagans to test his people and to turn them back repeatedly to him. We see that early in the book of Judges. It also gave evidence of God meaning what he says. Have you ever, um, maybe you, your parents at some point in time, or maybe you're a parent? have made idle threats, if you don't stop that, I'm going to come back there and kick you into next Tuesday or something along those lines. I don't know what your parents said to you, Um, but God needed to mean what he said because those empty idle threats are empty idle threats. God is a a God of his word. He means what he says, and, and so he had to follow that through. It gives evidence that he is faithful to what He says, they had been warned that their disobedience would result in these people being a thorn in their eyes. It literally says brambles in their eyes. If you do not obey me, these people are going to be like brambles in your eyes. If you ever get anything in your eye, it hurts. Can you imagine having sticker bushes or rose thorns in your eyes? There were going to be a trap for them and a whip for their back. Joshua 23 tells us that. And it played out this way because what we see happening if you read the whole book of Judges, we see that... Israelites lured into the local ways of thinking and worship, which led them to forget about God, which resulted in ongoing recurrent oppression when this happens. And the sad thing is, you'd think that they would learn the first go-around, but Israel's stubborn just like we are. The people would cry out. They'd find themselves in these messes, and then they would cry out to God, and he is full of mercy and compassion Judges 2.16 says this, Then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Yet Israel did not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves by worshiping other gods. How quickly they turned away from the path of their ancestors, who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. You know, they were doing a good job as long as Joshua and his contemporaries were around, but as soon as Joshua was gone, um, they failed to continue in those ways. And God had mercy and he gave them judges to answer this. But we see a pattern playing out in a pattern of behavior for Israel. God gives a judge who leads them into battle. A generation or two of peace follows that. Judge dies and people quickly forget God and revert back to aligning with the pagan society and incurring God's wrath. Then they have a season of oppression Think about 18, 20 years. That's a long season, 18 to 20 years of being oppressed. Then the people have turned, have had all they can take, and they turn back to God, and they cry out, oh, God, help us. And God answers with, guess what, another judge, okay? And this judge leads them fighting in their battles. He, it leads to the peace that follows, and then repeat the whole thing again. And if it sounds like I just repeated myself, then you get the idea. That's what was happening in Israel You know, I I wondered sometimes, is it because they had a short memory, Could they just just didn't have a short memory, because of how quickly they turned away because they forgot? Maybe it was they failed to pass down the faith. You know, we see a lot of our younger generations walking away from the Lord. Is it because mom and dad aren't walking with the Lord? We don't know. Or maybe, maybe it's just human nature. You know, it reminds me of this proverb, Proverbs 2611. It's a little gross, but as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his foolishness. It is a bit of human nature. And you know, I, I looked, side note, for all you dog aficionados out there, I was thinking about, ooh, dogs and yeah, I've seen dogs do that, it's disgusting. And it made me think of all these people that let their dogs kiss them in the mouth. And and lest you think that a dog's mouth is cleaner than a human's mouth, because that myth is out there, I looked it up, it is a myth. Dog experts say it's not true. The bacteria is just different. So there you go, a little freebie for you. <laughs> These judges, and if you like to kiss your dog, it's okay. No judgment. It's up to you. <laughs> These judges were not like we think of judges today. So they didn't wear the red or the black robes with the white wigs and sit behind a big bench. These guys and gals, There were men and women that God called. They were chosen by God. His call was on their life. Does that sound like anybody we talked about today? They were empowered by God. His spirit rested upon them. And therefore, they had a strategic and spiritual leadership role to play in the lives of God's people. We pick up our story today in Judges 6. It's time for a new judge. We've already had a few seasons of a good judge dies, oppression, a new judge, and Here we come to a man chosen by God. Israel is experiencing the worst oppression to date, and yet it was one of the shortest seasons. The seasons before were 18 and 20 years between judges, those 18 to 20 years of oppression. And this oppression had only been going on for seven short years, but it was the heaviest, the worst, the biggest oppression yet to date. The Midianites, a people that were just so severe that it said they were thick as locusts. That was how many of them there were. They were very populous people. And they stripped the land bare. They drove Israel into hiding. And we read in Judges 6.6 6 that so Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. And look what happens. Then the Israelites cry out to the Lord for help. It had to get that bad before they turned back to God. You know, I don't think that we are any different. When we choose to ignore God's instructions, which can be found in his word, the Bible, and maybe yours is on your your tablet or your device, maybe you have a paper copy, and if you don't have a copy, you talk to us, and we'll make sure we can show you how to get a copy. But his word is full of instructions that have been given to us for our good. We become, when we ignore this, we become trapped in our sins, which leads to shame and confusion, royal messes. We lose our way and our identity. We forget we're children of God and our confidence, and we may even try to hide from our problems. The problem with this is that we miss out on the good things God wants for us. We may start to doubt that God is even real until we get into such desperate situations that we cry out to him for deliverance. We hit the bottom of that barrel and we start looking up. Thankfully, he's gracious, but we need to take the warnings he gives us in Scripture seriously. Can I just say that and let that sink in a moment? We need to take those warnings seriously. If we want steady faith, and I presume that we all do, we must understand this principle. Ignore God's instructions and experience sin's oppression. Okay, we don't have Midianites oppressing us, but the reality is sin is oppressive. If you let sin reign in your life and ignore God's ways, then you will come under the oppression of sin. It's not a pleasant place to be. I've seen many people walk away from the Lord, and they find themselves in such misery. And you have to wonder—you know—you know better. A lot of these people that I'm talking about know better. Enter Gideon. Remember, I said a special guy. Israel's next judge. Now, I want to pause a second here. I could have picked anybody because uh, we had the this, this summer series, pick a character and stuff like that, that that you feel exhibits steady faith. And I was bound and determined to pick one of the women characters. And I even looked at the judge, Deborah, because she's a great example of that. But I was drawn back to Gideon. Because when I talked to Abby, as she was making her decision, I said, Abby, you need to put out a fleece. And Abby said, I put out a fleece and stuff like that. And it just brought Gideon back to the front. I was a homeschooling mom many years ago. And we used a Christian curriculum because uh, homeschooling is for Christian families that can't afford private school education. So they want to give a Christian education. They try to do it themselves. That was me. And, uh, and it worked well for us. But, you know, using this Bible curriculum, it talked about uh, things that I thought I knew about. You know, when I hear the name Gideon, I think fleece and that's about it. And the curriculum asked more questions, and I said, we're going to have to read this. And when I got into the book of Judges and started reading the story, the whole story of Gideon, I was like, whoa, this is amazing. I just want to share that with you. But this is where we find Gideon. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. He was a resourceful man. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Now, this says that, yeah, well, we're not there yet, but this isn't just an angel. This isn't your typical angelic appearance, okay? It was the angel of the Lord. And for those of you that aren't theology theology majors, it's what's known in theology as a theophany. So what that word means is it's a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Jesus is generally the general consensus on what that is, but it's basically God in flesh. So God is appearing as a man and talking to Gideon, and Gideon doesn't realize it who he's talking to, and it kind of reveals that through his response in this conversation, because he doesn't hold back on his cynicism. He says, sir... Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say, the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now, where? Now the Lord has abandoned us. He's abandoned us. You know, I think that this is very much a symptom of faltering faith. You know, we do the same thing. We ask, well, if God loves me, why is this happening? Where's the proof? I need a miracle. Then I'll trust him. Sadly, sometimes we draw the wrong conclusions that God has abandoned us, or even worse, that he doesn't even exist. Have you seen people that walk away and think, oh no, I can't believe that he's even real anymore? The funny thing is that it's never God that does the abandoning. Do you know how I know this? I love this verse in Hebrews. It says, don't love money, be satisfied with what you have, for God has said, I will never leave you I will never abandon you. You know, this is actually, I found this fascinating this week. It's actually quoting Deuteronomy 31.6. And do you know what Deuteronomy 31.6 is? It was Moses telling Joshua, hang in there, Joshua. You fight those battles. God will never leave you or forsake you. Mighty faith. Trust God that he will do what he says, and he promises that he will never abandon you. So then I have to think, then, but you need to understand that it's not God that does the abandoning, that it's us, just like the Israelites, who choose to walk away and abandon God instead of letting trials bring us back to a place of steady faith. So we can take this principle away that when faith starts to falter, it's not God's fault. Remember that. If your faith is starting to falter, it's not God's fault. You need to own it, own your responsibility in it, and realize that he promises that he has not abandoned you even if you don't understand what's going on. He has a purpose in that. Gideon the hero, as the Lord called him, has a job to do. The Bible tells us that the Lord didn't engage with Gideon's protest, but turned to him and said this, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. Gideon's response was probably much like what mine would have been, who me? Are you kidding me? But Lord Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan's the weakest in the whole tribe, and I'm the least in my entire family. I am at the low of the low. The Lord said to him, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Gideon was humble. That's what I see in this. I see that, you know, he didn't say, hey, I'm all that in a bag of chips. I can do this. I don't need God. You know what? Gideon was humble. He couldn't see past his own perceived limitations, which isn't a bad thing because we know that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. God uses the humble because they're more likely to rely on him. You know, this reminds me that the key to this God-sized faith, humility is key in facing God-sized challenges. It's that driving us back to God, of God-reliance. He's doing what he said he would do, and we just need to keep trusting him when things look hard. So what does Gideon do next? You know, he had a bit of a a moment where he realized who he was talking to. The narrative goes on to tell us that Gideon had his doubts and wanted proof that the Lord was truly going to help him. So he asked for a sign. Now, this isn't the famous fleece, but he wanted to make sure who he was really talking to. Is this just me, or is this the Lord speaking, or is this some person pretending that they're speaking on the Lord's behalf? He needed to make sure it wasn't his own idea. He asked the Lord to stay put until he could go get an offering. Now, remember that they are in a time of starvation, so they didn't have, like, a lot of excess things to sacrifice but he went and he got a sacrifice he said please stay here I'm gonna go get a sacrifice he went and got some bread and oil and broth and uh, some meat and he built a little pile of stones and he offered that in the presence of this person from Gideon's perspective and what happened next is so cool the angel of the Lord touched that offering with the tip of his staff and it was consumed by fire and he disappeared. Just right before Gideon's eyes, he disappeared. I don't know about you, but that would probably convince me that, hey, something special is happening here. The proof was given. Gideon had the proof that he needed. It really was God telling him to do what he was doing. And it freaked him out. He said, oh, my goodness. Oh, sovereign Lord, I'm doomed. I have seen you face to face. The Lord reassured Gideon, he said, it's going to be okay, don't be afraid, you will not die. Isn't that what we're always, often afraid of? Worst case scenario. What happens next is fascinating. We know that the major tasks, that major task God asks us to do require major preparation. Don't ever doubt that. If God's calling you to do something more, there's going to be some preparation time. You don't just wake up one morning and say, Oh, I have giant-sized faith. I can conquer the world. It's, it's fought faith step by step, faith to faith as we test and see that God or taste and see that God is good. God test Gideon. You know his first test? You know what it was? It was, Okay, Gideon, I need you to stand up to your family. Because if you can't stand up for them, to them then you're not going to be able to stand up for me when the going gets tough. Scripture tells us that the Lord told Gideon to take his father's bull, tear down his dad's altar to Baal. That was the pagan god that the pagan peoples worshipped. And use the Asherah pole. These Asherah poles were part of the Baal worship. It was kind of um, Baal and Asherah together. This pole was made of wood. It was used for idol worship. And Gideon was told to build an altar to God using stones, then burn his dad's bull on the altar. Remember, starvation time. Using the ashra pole for fuel. How's that? A uh, There you go. <laughs> Gideon did this at night for obvious reasons because he uh, was afraid of the family and the community's reaction, rightly so, because the next morning, Everybody gets up and sees this, sees this bull. They see the the Baal altar torn down. They see the Asherah pole on fire, uh, which would be a real affront to somebody that thinks of it as a god or part of their worship. And they're like, who did this? We've got to find out who did this. So they did a diligent search. They figured out it was Gideon. And you know what? This had been, must have been a wake-up call for Gideon's dad because... Gideon's dad stepped into the gap. Now, that was his altar and his Asherah pole, and he probably was quite confronted by being confronted by Gideon's actions. And he said, you know what? If Baal's a god, let Baal defend himself. Wake up, call for dad. It bolstered dad's faith by seeing his son step into a, a position of following God faithfully without fear. And you know, it earned Gideon a nickname, Jerubbabel or Jeru Jeru Baal, if you you see it spelled out, which literally means let Baal defend himself. So in standing up for his faith, this humble Gideon who says, I'm just the least, he made a name for himself. He had this nickname, let Baal stand up for himself. Oh yeah, there goes let Baal stand up for himself, that guy. I'm sure some of you joining us today come from places that you had to stand up in your faith to your family and your communities to follow Jesus. I know that in some countries, to follow Jesus and to be baptized is a death sentence. You had to be courageous in following and doing it different than your family and your community had. One of the early tests in my ministry, I'll never forget, was to stand up to my own family. Without going into details, I can tell you it was a really difficult thing to do. I had to confront something, and I was been told that, oh, that's just her issue. It wasn't just my issue. But I can tell you if I had not stood up as God was prompting me at that time and that place with my family, I wouldn't be standing before you today. It was a step of obedience. And that's what God wants. It's That steady faith comes one step at a time time and it's part of our developmental journey is taking those steps of faith. So Gideon passed this test number 1. Seems like a little time passes when we read the whole account in the scriptures because alliances are forming. So it wasn't just all these Midianites but it was everybody else was against Israel. They were truly the underdog and the Bible tells us that this is what happened. Then the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon with power. The time has come. He's passed test number one. Now it's time to get busy. The troops are amassing against Israel. And after passing this first test, Gideon waited to move until God says, okay now. Okay now. He didn't run ahead of God. And he didn't go it alone. Scripture tells us that he sent word out to all the tribes of Israel throughout the land and said, listen, this battle's coming. We need your help. And everybody replied in the affirmative. So they responded favorably. But Gideon, the funny thing, he's human. Never look at scripture and not see the humanity of the people's stories that we read. He still had his doubts. God, Gideon decides to test God. Unless you think that's a bad thing, you know, oh, we're not supposed to test God. We're not supposed to tempt the Lord and put him, depends on your translation, put him to the test. But Gideon we can see that Gideon needed more proof, and and this is what Judges 636 tells us, then Gideon said to God, if you are truly going to use me to rescue Israel as you have promised, prove it to me in this way, prove it to me in this way, he needed proof. So we have the famous fleeces, fleece number one, Wool, he says, let me place a wool fleece on the threshing floor tonight. If it's wet with dew in the morning, but the ground around it's dry, I'll know that you're going to help me. And that's just what happened. Gideon gets up the next morning early, squeezed out a whole bowl full of water from that fleece. But wasn't enough. Test number two for God. Then Gideon said to God, please don't be angry with me, but let me make one more request. Let me use the fleece for one more test Gideon probably thought, oh, that was a dumb way to ask. Because, you know, of course the fleece is going to be more wet than the ground because it's wool and wool holds moisture and, and all that. So he says, please don't be angry with you, God. Let me ask one more thing of you. So the famous fleece test number two is let the fleece remain dry while the ground around it's wet. Then I'm gonna know. And guess what? That's exactly what God did. Isn't He gracious? He is so gracious to wait for our faith to mature to the place that it's ready and trusting. What we learn from this is God gets us. I love that. He gets us. He is not afraid of our questions and our wrestlings. Following God in big wigs can be scary. It can be. It is. Do you have your doubts about stepping forward with something God has his finger on in your life? The Bible tells us to taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34, 8. Our fears hold us back from even trying sometimes, far too often. So many times in my faith journey, I have needed reassurance that I had it right. And that God was really directing us to sell our house, leave a ministry, leave our country, study again, that was a big one, give of my time and resources, especially when it felt like we didn't have much to give, to change jobs. I can tell you that God answered sometimes in very specific ways. When he took us to Pennsylvania, I said, God, if you're taking me to that snowy place, then I'm going to need a hair straightener for my girls to make their life easier, and I'm going to need a treadmill so I can keep running. You know, those are so random things. I didn't tell a soul that that's what I needed And I walked into church on one of those early Sundays and somebody handed me a bag. And I looked in the bag and guess what was in it? A hair straightener. I didn't even, you know, no one knew. And, you know, he provided a treadmill in much the same way. Somebody was getting rid of a very, uh, very high level treadmill. And God answers in such beautiful, specific ways that you're like, no doubt that is God. Because he wants us to trust him and see that he is good and he will provide where he calls us. He is good. So the principle that we can take away from that is when it's fear versus faith, God meets us right where we are. We don't have to muster up all the faith first. God will journey with us through that. He will answer those requests when you're following him. And don't think, though, that it's about your agenda. It's about what God is doing. You know, with this reassurance, uh, Gideon had another test that he had to pass. So with the reassurance, Gideon gets moving. He goes right into another place of testing. God tests Gideon. In Judges 7, 2, tells us this. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. You know, the too many warriors was 32,000 men. God told Gideon, tell them, if, if you're afraid, tell the men, if you're afraid, you can go home. Well, with that offer, 22,000 of them left, leaving just a mere 10,000 to go against innumerable armies. They were already so vastly outnumbered, and yet God had another test, the water test. He said, Gideon, take the men down. If they drink with their face in the water, um, that'll separate the ones that drink from cupping the water in their hands. And Judges 7.7 says this, The Lord told Gideon, With these 300 men I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. Can you imagine seeing your troops whittled down to just 300 and knowing what you were up against? Faith, Stan reminded us last week that faith requires action. Gideon followed through. He sent those men home. And it didn't make any sense at all. Sending Abby away doesn't make any sense at all for us. But can you imagine how Gideon must have felt? You know, he's facing a problem bigger than he has realized with fewer resources than he expected. What happens next is remarkable. Judges 7, nine through 11 tells us this. That night the Lord said, get up, go down to the Midianite camp for I've given you the victory over them. But if you're afraid, go, listen, you will be greatly encouraged. Then you will be eager to attack. You know what happened? This is one of my favorite parts in the story of Gideon, my absolute favorite. God gave this reassurance at just the right moment. Gideon did what God told him to do. He went down, he took his servant, Pura. God often does not send us alone. He'll give us a companion to go with us. Down to the edge of the camp at night, he came up beside this tent he could see the troops like swarms of locusts, camels, the Bible tells us, like grains of sand on the seashore, too many to count. And he's thinking, oh my goodness, I only have 300. How is this going to work? When his ears are pricked, because he, he landed there just at the moment, a man was saying, you know what, I had the weirdest dream last night. You ever? I do that to Stan all the time. I had the weirdest dream last night, let me tell you about it. He says, a loaf of barley bread tumbled down the hill into our camp, hit a tent, turned it over, and knocked it flat. His mate said, ah, your dream can mean only one thing. God has given Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite, victory over Midian and all its allies. Wow. I love that part. Stop and let that sink in. Imagine hiding in the dark and hearing your name out of a stranger's mouth at just the right, think the timing of that. God had already gone ahead of Gideon because the guy would have had the dream the night before. And, and, and who, I'm sure this guy, is a, his mate isn't normally a dream interpreter, but Gideon heard his name of his household, so it wasn't mixed up with any other Gideon, coming out of the mouth of this stranger. It's too wild for words. God works this way sometimes. It's usually in direct relationship to call on, his call in our lives and answer to our prayers of uncertainty as we move forward in faith, trusting him. It wasn't on Gideon's terms asking, he wasn't asking God for what he thought he needed. God went ahead of him and gave him what God knew he needed to follow him in obedience and reassurance. Gideon didn't know how God was going to bring the victory because logically it didn't make sense, but he believed he would, so he moved forward with his shaky faith steadied. The principle we get from this is steady Faith is trusting God to work out his purpose and his timing. Sometimes that waiting is hard, but we'll know when it's time to move. You know what happens next? Judges 7, 15, and 16 says this. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship before the Lord. Then he returned to camp and shouted, Get up, for the Lord has given you victory! Attack! Gideon worships, and in boldness of faith, he leads his troop of only 300 with confidence that only God could give. He finally realized the battle was God's and not theirs. Victory followed. I'm going to cut it short for you um, because you'll have to read it yourself if you want the whole story to not miss a thing. But it didn't happen in the way that you would expect. Now, you expect war to happen, and then go up and they, they battle it out, and yeah. Gideon and his arm, army blew horns and they shouted, the sword of the Lord and for Gideon from outside of the camp. And it created such chaos and confusion that the armies literally turned their swords on each other. They killed themselves, basically. They didn't commit suicide, but there was so much confusion. There was probably strange, um, strange armies together that didn't know each other. And literally, Gideon and his army just stood there and watched They didn't have to enter that battle in the way they thought they would. God was fighting it for them in ways that they could not have imagined. And you know what? God got the glory. It wasn't Gideon or the army. It was God. And there's a bit more to the story, like I said, but suffice it to say, we know that Gideon died when he was very old. And as soon as he died kind of a sad ending in Gideon's, to Gideon's story is the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping, worshiping Baal and forgot the Lord their God who had rescued them repeatedly. And they forgot about Gideon and all the good he had done for them. And the cycle continued. Typical. That's why the world needs a Savior, Jesus. We can't do it on our own. We forget so quickly. We've got to walk in the Spirit so that we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh it's a day-by-day day trusting of the Lord. His mercies are new every day. Let me ask you some questions. How is your faith going, journey going? How? How is it going? Are you journeying with God? Are you holding back to say, oh, I'm going to wait for him to prove it with a miracle so I believe that he's even there or real? Today could be the day that you start a journey with him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He can be trusted. Let me ask you another question. Has he let you down in some way and you felt abandoned by him? If you're honest, could it be that you abandoned God and not the other way around? It's not too late. Today you can come back and say, okay, I get it. I've learned my lessons. I want to follow again. Are you like a bit like Israel, forgetful about God until you find yourself in a desperate situation and think, how did I get here? And you keep making the same mistakes over and over. Trust that God's ways work. And try things his way. Get in this book. Learn what that means. And then watch what real change looks like. And how about you that have been following God faithfully? Your faith has been steady. Maybe God is asking you to step up like he has Abby. And to do something that seems a little bit impossible, or at least hard, is your faith faltering? That's a great place to be, right where God wants you. You can rely on him, and he gets you. He knows you. He knows your fears. He knows your capabilities. He knows your limitations. And if you let him, he may want to take you to great places of victory that only can be attributed to him. Remember, when a problem is much bigger than you realized and you have less resources than you expected, God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we ask or think. Stay steady in your faith. Keep trusting and wait for him to do what only he can do because faithful is he who called you who also will do it. We pray with me? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Father, today we are reminded from your word and just even from Abby's steps of obedience that you are a God who calls people into challenging things because you want us to trust you. Father, I pray for every person sitting here today and listening online that if there is something that you're putting your finger on, that you want them to just taste and see that you do what you say, to turn them back to you, Father, or to make them step further in faith to trust you just... In whatever area in their life you have their fing- your finger on, Father, I just pray for courage, to trust, and that you would keep us as a people of steady faith for your glory and your victory. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen.